This is a Fubar Radio podcast. For more information, go to foobarradio.com. You're listening to Femi on Fubar Radio. What I, members of the Cabinet and the whole government are doing is working to ensure that we leave the European Union with a deal. Many people are still advocating for their preferred, most pure um, uh, version of the outcome. Uh, What we need is that time pressure to start to make people think uh, about practical solutions, about uh, finding a common ground and a compromise uh, that allows us to go forward as a, as a nation. The right honourable gentleman has been willing to sit down with Hamas, Hezbollah and the IRA without, without preconditions, yet he won't meet me to talk about Brexit. In this case, he's neither present nor involved. Mr Speaker, actually I did reach out to the Prime Minister last September when I offered to discuss our deals with her. And it appears that, uh, it appears, Mr Speaker, that while the door to her office may well be opened, apparently the minds inside it are completely closed. The Prime Minister could indicate that seeking an extension of three months, uh, that would indicate that she was serious about sitting down with people and talking, in particular, the trade unions. You know, this meeting I've had today is two and a half years too late. Please don't listen to the Brexiteers' madness, which asserts that because we have huge plans here, we will not move and we will always be here. They are wrong. Welcome back. This is Femi. This is the this is the floor is yours. Uh, here I'm joined by Emma Burnell, uh, chair of Open Labour and the and a political commentator. Oh, it's been a week. So this week we're going to be discussing uh, the housing crisis. Um, but what's happened this week? Uh, so we've had the, after the deal, the Brexit deal got voted down uh, last week. We had there was the, they were supposed to come back with a new Brexit plan, their Plan B. Uh, and that was supposed to say what the government was going to do, what the plan was for Brexit, given that they literally had none. Um, and then that got presented, um, as you just heard. Uh, basically, Labour wants that wants the government to, to take no deal off the table, so that we can't leave with no deal. Uh, Theresa May is refusing to do that, and so they've been they've been going back and forth like children, basically, saying, you take no deal off the table, you know I want no deal, no blah, 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 blah. It's, been, it's been basically that for the, the, the entire week. Um, and it's just in a, in a complete mess. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think complete mess just about sums it up. Um, I don't think there is no... There's, there's no, no, no mess. I mean, it, yeah. you know, there, it, everything's a mess. Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, while we have this huge mess, mm. everything else is a mess because we're only concentrated on this mess. Precisely. And I've said it before. I mean, the one thing, I think there are two things that the, that unite the country around Brexit right now. And that is, one, nobody likes the deal. The, 52, the 52% that voted for more control hate a deal that means we have less control. The 48% that wanted to stay in the EU hate a deal that takes us out of the EU. So we've now spent two and a half years negotiating something that literally nobody voted for. Um, and it's very Theresa May to find the one option that everybody has. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, it is a skill. I've often referred to it as professional incompetence. I think that's possibly giving her slightly too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, we're, we're on that. And, but as you, as you mentioned, uh, we're not dealing with the actual issues that matter to people. I mean, we've had... Well, I mean, the Brexit vote was largely about people saying this isn't good enough. And um, that related to things like um, the NHS, um, the regional inequality, um, the lack of democratic representation because of our constituency-based voting system, and, of course, the housing crisis. Now, 
this is one of those topics that I don't really, um, well, it's not my area of expertise. I studied law, didn't really come up with a lot of housing other than land law, which I didn't do particularly well in. Um, but uh, I would like, I want to hear from you. So if you want to tweet us, um, tweet at Fubar Radio, or you can call 0330-223-0200 um, to get involved. The floor is yours. What needs to happen regarding the housing crisis, do you reckon? Uh, well, I know that you've got Tom Copley coming on later, mm. so I'm going to usurp him by, by <laughs> using his catchphrase. And the answer is build more bloody houses. That seems like a logical solution. Um, yeah, we just got to get sensible about both building more housing, but also building the right kind of housing, building housing that people can actually afford to live in, mm. rather than simply building endless luxury flats. I mean, where I, I live in East London, mm. and there are flats going up all around that are empty most of the time because they're just being bought as investments, they're being bought as overseas properties. Mm. And, you know, where I live, I walk past so many homeless people. Yeah. Every Christmas, uh, so this year is uh, like I did, ev- uh, ev- like I do every year. As soon as I get too fed up with my family, I go down and I volunteer at Crisis at Christmas, mm. and it's just every year it gets more, more heartbreaking and more difficult. And you just, you just feel like, well, this week, great, we've given people somewhere to stay, we're giving them advice, we're giving them help. Where are we the other fifty-one weeks of the year? We can't keep doing it as volunteers. Yeah. It's, the state has got to step up. Yeah, uh, well, uh, absolutely. I mean. It's it, it's absolutely horrendous that we are literally stepping over the homelessness problem um, because we're not dealing we're dealing with this utter, utter distraction, and it's just not getting better. In fact, I have noticed I've, it's been gotten noticeably mm-hmm. worse. Um, and when you look at, I mean, I think it was um, that I think Shelter pointed out that it was uh, six hundred thousand. Um, what was it? What is it? How many houses across England that are vacant right now? Um, I think it was. I think it was six hundred, six hundred thousand or so. And there are four hundred, uh, four thousand five hundred people sleeping rough. Yeah. Um, I don't know about the vacant housing, but uh, there are one point three million houses needed. Mm. Uh, yeah, and we just we are not building them. Mm. And we are even when we do build housing, we're building the wrong kind of housing because there's no financial incentive to build the right kind of housing. In fact, councils are financially crippled by the fact that well, as soon as they build anything half decent, they have to sell it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that, that that's that's kind of the problem. And yeah, it's six hundred thousand empty homes, and it's 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 because the government is 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 fo- it isn't basically pulling its weight and leaving it to private companies to build these houses that they think well. We can't make that much money off of poor people, but we can make a lot of money if we build massive luxury mansions. So let's go with that instead, because the people that really need homes are the top 1%. Yeah, and there, yeah, as I say, there is, the market has demonstrably failed. Mm. Yeah, and what states are for is to step in when the market fails. And we have seen failure. This isn't a new failure. This has been failing for years and years and years. It's got a lot worse under austerity because what the Labour government did when it was doing a bit more state intervention at a later stage, they were not building housing, something mm. I'm very cross with them about. But at a later stage, they did intervene a lot more. There was just less rough sleeping. Mm. They almost completely eliminated it. That has just completely gone under austerity. The last eight years has just got worse and worse. And meanwhile, council budgets are being cut to the bone. So they're only providing the services that they absolutely legally have to provide Mm. and that means that an awful lot of the services that they used to provide that that were non-statutory just aren't there anymore absolutely ridiculous i mean i mean you you've you've just got you've got a podcast where i imagine you've discussed this as well um but you also talk about american politics um and uh, roger stone what what were we talking about regarding roger stone Uh, not on my my podcast actually discusses um 
politics and popular culture. Mm. So we did a wonderful episode with um, the journalist John Ellidge about our friends in the north, which is all about um, sort of in many ways the the long sweep of housing crisis history. Mm. So if anyone is interested in how we got here, I highly recommend watching our friends in the north because it will give you a really good grounding on where we got to by the 90s. Mm. So this isn't new. Mm. Um, But actually, I mean, in terms of the, the, the Roger Stone thing, my other podcast that I was doing, we do a weekly kind of discussion on politics. Mm. Um, as you'll have seen today, Roger Stone, huge Trump ally, has been arrested, mm. um, raided by the FBI very early in the morning. On you what know, basis? Proper, uh, several accusations of um, lying to Congress, which is similar to perjury. Yeah. Um, and the in the documents, there's an awful lot of references to person one. Mm. And uh, in terms of, you know, you, you use... An, euphemism like person one yeah. to not identify someone although this person one happens to be currently residing in the ecuadorian embassy so i think we can probably all guess <laughs> roughly who person yeah, one is yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay well um you chair you chair open labor yes. uh, can you tell us something about, about that uh yeah open labor is uh, a new grouping within labor because you know obviously labor party didn't have enough factions so we decided we needed a new <laughs> one <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Um, we're basically um, what the sort of internationalist left of the Labour Party. Um, we have similar politics to lots of other people, but we're trying to do it in a slightly different way, a very mm. open way, a less controlled way, a lot less sort of internal sort of... I wouldn't say oppression, but you will stick to the line. Um, mm. Trust me, as chair, I can honestly tell you, no one has ever stuck to the line mm. at Open Labour. Okay, so it's a lot, more, it's a lot more horizontal, flat-based. Everyone has a voice, sort of thing. Absolutely. Uh, now that doesn't mean to say that we don't take some stances. We took a very strong stance on the anti-Semitism crisis in the summer. Mm. Um, you know, saying that the, you know this is appalling. We came out saying that no one should vote for Pete Wilsman, for example. Mm. Um, we've taken a pretty strong line we have a great pamphlet on laying out what the different options for Europe look like Um, I wouldn't say that we're completely as an organisation where I am in terms of wanting a people's vote but Mm. we're getting there we've got a conference on Saturday which will vote on some of these options saying where we think the Labour Party should go Mm. but we're very much sort of either people's vote or Norway I would say we're very much on that side of the of the party debate cool 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 cool. and so I mean, you say you're, you're, on the, you're on the left of Labour, as you mentioned. There, yeah. are, there are other um, elements within the left of, left of Labour. Uh, are, are all the left of Labour um, pro Corbyn, or, or, is, or, is it, or are there different parts of the left of Labour that are, are pro Corbyn? How, how does that work together? Uh, well, I think one of the things that we really try to do at Open Labour is not make it about personalities, Agreed. make it about the politics. Thank God for that. It, well, quite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I've spent my. I've been a Labour Party member for 28 years. Mm. I'm very old. Um, so, and I've criticised every Labour leader and I've, I've praised every Labour leader. Mm. And long may it continue because yeah. no one's perfect and no one's terrible. Absolutely. Th- I mean, th- yeah, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing that. The idea, the personality politics that we've been seeing for the past few years has just been such a disappointment. The idea that you can't have a policy because it's, because it's supported by this person or that you have to have a policy because it's supported by this person. 
Whereas people, I mean, it's it's that gang mentality that is ruining politics. It's the same thing you have in America, whereby if you're a Republican, you have to sign up to every mm-hmm. single one of the things Republicans believe in. You must believe in, uh, you must be against abortion, you must be pro-gun control, you must be, yeah, and and it's, it's what led to them voting, voting for Trump, because, well, I guess he's our guy now, yeah, so yeah. I guess we believe in all the things he believes in. And it, it, that has got to change. I mean, we've got, um, we'll, we'll be speaking to um, George Aylett, um in a, in a couple of minutes, and we have a really good rapport. Even though we disagree mm-hmm. f- like strongly on what we need to do with Brexit, we understand each other, we respect each other, we understand that we have the same views about how Britain needs to change. But our followers often don't yeah. get that. <laughs> um, like today, uh, when George announced... You mean our- people don't understand subtlety on Twitter? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, actually, uh, well, he, he'll, he'll be he'll be here, he'll be here in a second to discuss what the reaction to posting that he'll be discussing with me um, will, will be uh, was because, um, uh, yeah, let's just say uh, there were some fairly strong rea- emotions to the idea that we'd be talking together. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, so we've got um, a tweet here that says a hundred percent, and this is this is from. Uh, uh, Ponchian Kamanda, who says, 100%, it's a hot mess right now. The wor- and, and the worst thing is that some people um, are settling for this. Politicians lack accountability. They lie and serve themselves and not the people they represent. It's an absolute travesty right now that the ordinary people are blindly suffering due to austerity. And that is kind of the point. We have um, a large part of what led us to this particular moment is that the politicians have failed for a very long time. Can I just say something slightly controversial? Go on. Politicians have absolutely 100% failed us. Mm. I don't think many of them lie. Not outright lie. I mean, okay, mm. yeah, the bus was totally a lie. Boris Johnson, Theresa May is actually really quite bizarre among politicians being able to lie very brazenly. Mm. But most of them will give you their best varnished version of a version of the truth. Mm. And I know that's a a distinction without a difference. Mm. But I do think there is so much anti-politics mood at the moment. And I think that's part of the danger that we're in. You know, the elites are all the same. Mm. And the idea that someone like Nigel Farage isn't the elite, and I am, (laughs) slightly sends me loopy. But... Yeah, I think it's really important that we actually take politics a bit more seriously and take politicians a bit more seriously and absolutely hold their feet to the fire, hold them to account, make sure they're doing the right job, which they are failing to do at the moment. Mm. But I think if we just fall into that, all politicians are X narrative, I think that's as damaging as some of the other narratives that we get from the right. I, I, I do hear you because the moment we, I mean, you do have those people that are saying, well, Brexit was just the first step. We need to get rid of all politicians in general and have just a a country of militias or something. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I mean, you, 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 you raise an absolutely good point. I mean, a lot of the when 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 we talk about politicians lying, sometimes it is outright lies. Sometimes it's more just focusing on certain facts to the point that it skews the narrative in order to make people think certain things. For example, if you say um, uh, the the, like Nigel Farage when when he said um, the sole source of EU law is the is the is the European Commission, um, and and they're and they're unelected. 
unelected by unelected by the people, but we elect people who then choose them. Mm-hmm. Much, much like we elect, I mean, for example, Matt Hancock right now has the power over life of death of our entire country, but he wasn't on the ballot paper for ninety nine point nine percent of the population. Uh, so effectively, and he, he wasn't elected um, health secretary. He wasn't elected health health secretary. Um, Theresa May chose him uh, along with her other list of greatly wise choices for <laughs> health secretary or foreign minister. Um, uh, but the point is. He, he makes that point, even though every piece of EU law get, has to get approved, amended or rejected by the European Parliament, which is directly elected. But if you only tell one fact, even though that fact in and of itself might be true, if you, if you leave out the other elements, then, uh, then, you, then you're basically um, convincing people that... That, that yeah you're, you're deceiving people yeah no absolutely i mean i'm not disagreeing with you and i'm not saying mm. that either our political discourse or the politicians involved in it are doing a great job at it but if we tar everyone with the same brush exactly. if, if we say that they're all liars then people will lose faith in the very concept of politics and democracy and, and democracy and we won't get anywhere uh we will bring in george aylett right now uh here he is hey george hello aylett. there Oh, hello, Femi. How are you? Oh, not too bad, not too bad. I haven't seen you since, I think, Labour conference. Is that right? Indeed. That's Indeed. Indeed. Oh, that was a lovely, lo- lovely time. But yeah, no, um, good to talk. Uh, always better to do it in, uh, you know, talking rather than just on Twitter all the time. <laughs> exactly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, Go on, man. It, it, it is great to hear from you. So tell me your position within Labour exactly. Um, I was a former parliamentary candidate and I'm mm. currently a youth officer for the whole North constituency Labour Party. Mm. And so, right today, we're going to be talking about housing. Now, as we well, first, actually, let's first first discuss what happened on Twitter about a few minutes ago, uh, because I think, like I said, we need to fix politics like desperately as, as soon as this is over, because it can't continue like this. You can't have um, people who genuinely want to have a conversation and then have other people saying, no, we don't like that person, so you people can't discuss because we believe in you, we don't believe in what they said, therefore we don't want a conversation between the two of you. How harmful is that? It, <laughs> I think it's a bit... It's not really that good. I, I think there are certain limits you can do to it. So, for example, you can argue about giving platforms to the far right, etc. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's completely fine to debate with you, Femi. I look forward to it. And, yeah, I think we do need to deal with that in politics because rational debate is needed. And uh, you can argue about not being able to debate irrational points like fascism, etc. Exactly. But, y- y- you know, it- it's very good. And, um, you know, let- let- let's have this debate. Let's annoy this man. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, uh, yeah, on, on, in the spirit of, of annoying that guy, uh, let's point out the things that we do actually do. Because obviously we agree, we disagree on what to do with Brexit moving forward. But what we do agree is that the country needs radical change and it needs it as fast as possible. So, mm. and we're talking about the housing crisis now. Um, and for me, personally, I think that one of the major things that we have to do with the housing crisis is regional inequality. Because if London is, remains being the sole, the sole land of opportunity in the country, then places like Hull, where there should be more houses built, won't have the industry that, that they need to create the jobs. And therefore, um, the, peop- the people there will, won't be able to, as able to afford housing. And if you actually if you, if you directed industry to, to that place, it would make housing grow around the area. Well, I think you're right about the point about power and economics so if more power is taken out of london and given to more regions uh, whether that be through federalization etc then i think that's quite good i would say hull is one of the few places in the country which is actually bucking the trend on the housing crisis so hull city council uh, i believe they've released statistics that 96 percent of hull's land has been built on Mm. and actually housing is the third 
it's, it's the third most affordable place in the country where the average house price can vary between you know, 80,000 for a four-bedroom house in there just outside the city centre. So Hull is one of these places which, uh, you know, doesn't see this boom and bust from the housing crisis. Uh, I believe house price has gone up over 160, 170% across the country mm. over the last decade or so. Hull has remained quite flat. It's gone up with inflation regardless, uh, which is really, really good. Well done, And Hull. that's what happens when you actually build housing. So 96% of Hull's land has been built on. And a lot of that is housing. So that is one way to uh, go forward. To actually shock car, if you build housing, then <laughs> house prices will get lower. So yeah, I think yeah. about building houses across the country, mm. but also the point you make about power is so important. If all the jobs and opportunities in London, everyone wants to go to London and that raises house prices. Exactly. So I think decentralisation uh, will be uh, key to moving that power and hopefully reducing house prices, not only in London, but having it all across the country as well. Hi, George. This is uh, Emma Burnell. Uh, I just wanted to completely agree with that point. I mean, I think one of the things that um, has happened over the last eight years is there has been a lot of talk Mm. about decentralisation, the Northern Powerhouse, the Midlands Engine, and so little energy and actual devolution actual yep. devolution of power has has actually come in behind that mm. so you know and a whole great yeah you know, it's great that we have no me- new metro mayors i would quite like one of them not to be an old white guy but you know mm-hmm. you can't have everything um but actually we need so much more ability for them to raise funds locally for mm. more money to be directed locally and then for them to have the power to actually do something with that yep. because it's all very well to say build x number of council housing but you've also got to put all sorts of infrastructure in there you've got to have ways of attracting not just business but the right kind of business for the right kind of jobs so uh, when we talk about attracting business it's quite an old-fashioned conversation that happens about building a big Amazon warehouse like everyone wants to go and work at Amazon <laughs> strongly recommend James Bloodworth's book if you ever are thinking about going to work mm. at Amazon you know, it we need a much much better ability for us to plan locally to retain communities to build communities together and to make sure that those communities have the strength to go forward and to do what they want to do differently so that what you do in Hull is completely different from what someone might do not that far away in Sheffield or someone else might want to do at the other end of the country down in Penzance it's really important that each of those places are able to plan and build properly, and they can't do that with our massively over-centralised country. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, def- definitely. I've got a question for you both, actually. Um, do you both support the idea, when it comes to decentralisation of a federal United Kingdom, where we have regional assemblies to deal with that uh, you know, way of decentralising power, to having a Yorkshire Assembly, a Cornish Assembly, etc.? I mean, what are your both thoughts, uh, Emma and Simon? Are you going to go first? For me... I think it's an interesting idea, but I I worry that regional assemblies will just replicate the London problem on a slightly smaller scale. In what sense? So you'll get Manchester dominating the northwest, for example, or um, Leeds dominating Yorkshire, rather than Leeds and Sheffield and Doncaster all having their own sources of power and centres of power. So I, I've... I'm going to use a really posh, slightly wanky word now, which is subsidiarity, Hmm, which is basically meaning everything goes to the right level. And one of the reasons that you and I, Femi, are both pro-Europe is we think that some of those decisions should be made on a supranational level. Hmm. But I'm also very much a localist, and some of those decisions should be made by local councils or groups of local councils to come together. So while I think federalism might 
be a step in the right direction. I worry that it's the wrong step or slightly too small a step, George. Mm, okay, fair enough. What about you, Femi? What, I, what I, do you think? I... I'm more, I more or less echo that, but with less apprehension, I think, than, than than Emma. Just purely because I think that you're always. I think the closer we get, the better. So the the more, the more local we get, the better. And now, as you mentioned, it could be too small a step. That maybe you just need to give more power to individual constituencies. I, I, I don't know, but I do I do know that definitely regional devolution is absolutely the way forward because we've well. If we don't have that, or at least some version of that, then we're basically trusting Westminster to, to care about places that it's never cared about since in the whole history of the country. So I think it's de- that's definitely the step in the right direction. But I'm not an expert on this particular issue, so I would bow to both of your issue, both of your experiences. I spent as, three as, years as, at a local government think tank, so I can outgeek both of you. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've got we've got a text in from David D F L A fifty six who says we need more jobs and better and better paid jobs for our citizens. We need more homes available uh, available right now uh, now till we can build more. Only Brexit can deliver that. In fact, it already is. Reports reports that uh, that points to rent prices have already fallen in London and in in, in three months in three months in a row. What do you guys think? Is Brexit the way to solve the housing crisis? Making the country poorer is not the way to solve the housing crisis. If you think the government aren't giving enough money now, wait until they've got less to give. George? It's all about the political will in the country. So the act of leaving an institution, a supranational institution, is not going to single-handedly reduce house prices. It's all about the political will and what central government does with its powers, within its own borders, to actually deal with this issue. So to deal with the housing crisis is not just leaving a political institution, it's about actually building houses all across the country. And you need to do that whether within the European Union or outside the European Union. So, yeah, we just need to build and build and build. So that's central government's responsibility. Okay, so I think the the difference between the two of you on that that particular point was that Emma says uh, uh, Brexit is not the answer and that Brexit will actually impede our ability. Um, George, I believe you're saying that Brexit isn't the answer, but either way, we'd still be able to do the fix the problem e- uh, either way. Is that right? Well, we we can build we can build housing regardless where, whether or not we're in a supranational entity or not. We just need to do it. We need the political will to do it. We have the political will to end poverty in this country. It doesn't matter whether or not we're in the European Union. If we have the political will to do it, there are certainly the funds to do it. We just need a government that will actually do it, and that's why we need the Labour government more than anything. So that's why I'm campaigning so much for our party, because living standards will increase whether we're inside the European European Union or outside the European Union, because it's all about allocation of resources that we have. So, yeah, no, we just need that government first. What would you say to the notion that a lot of the argument, reg- uh, left and right, a lot of the left versus right argument is basically people on the right saying, yes, but your policy wouldn't work because your policy of government intervention is simply going to lead to, lead to more debt. And so the argument against that is, no, it's a, it's a sound policy. There will be enough money. We will not run into debt. So in theory, uh, if, we, if we take that basis, you, you have to say, all right, if something happens that makes the country fundamentally poorer, doesn't that increase the chance that any policy on the left will, go, will result in more debt? Surely we should avoid things that will objectively make the country poorer so there's less money in, in the... Uh, uh, and debt that's harder to service as well. If we lose uh, you know, our credit rating mm. by, go, by Brexiting, and, and particularly if we go for a hard Brexit... Mm. Uh, a no-deal Brexit, and we, we are very likely to have to borrow at much higher rates, which makes it much, much harder to get things done. Mm. 
Well, we lost our AAA credit rating uh, under the coalition years, regardless, because there is a big deficit, and that does need to be filled through high taxation on the richest, yep. high taxation on the corporations, and yep. also wealth taxes as well. Again, on this, we, all, we completely agreed. Yeah, yeah I think we're exactly. going to be very boring and all agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, but it hasn't been talked about enough. You know, the 2017 Labour Manifesto is obviously a good stepping stone towards the type of Britain we want to see in the future, but we need to look long-term beyond that as well. 50% top rate of tax, yeah, is a good start, but I think we can go beyond that and have Scandinavian higher top rate of tax. When it comes to corporation tax, we wanted to reverse it to 2011 levels. We can do better than that. We can do German levels of corporation tax. And when it comes to wealth taxes, we haven't done anywhere near enough when it comes to that. So I think there's a lot more uh, to actually build on the 2017 manifesto, which was an extremely good manifesto. Mm. Yeah, and we need to do a lot more to actually raise revenues from the wealthiest in society. And we can use those revenues to actually help public services, not only pay off their deficit as well, uh, but uh, reduce poverty. And if you reduce poverty, that also sees economic knock-on as well. So a lot of housing benefit is spent on subsidising poverty pay. But if you raise wages to the living wage, then that housing benefit goes down and that money can be spent elsewhere. Mm. So it's all about how a government allocates its resources. So it, that's why it's so important that we actually do have a government that will actually do it rather than carry on under the conservative or coalition years. Well, I mean, sorry, just, 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 to come in, just come in there. The thing is, almost every word you just said, I fundamentally agree with. Um, the fact that we do not, the country isn't working for people that desperately need work, th- things to work for. The fact that it's, it's not okay to keep going with status quo. The, st- the status quo is completely unacceptable. And so our objectives, a lot of our means, are pretty much the same and aligned. And yet, on Twitter... Somehow, we've managed to become seen as enemies, people that can't even talk to each other, even though our aims and our, and our means are exactly the same, which is kind of the problem. If we have something that is very, that is a very, well, obviously Brexit is, is a massive, huge issue, but if we have one issue that, peop, that we disagree on, then somehow that, that, that turns people into enemies. And that's why politics has become so toxic right now, that people with the same aims and, and, and ambitions can be seen as enemies. It's, it's really sad, Emma. Yeah, no, I mean, I, there's two things. <clears throat> One, to go back to what George was saying, I think everything George was saying was right, mm. but I think we also, one of the things that's really been missing is making a positive case, not just for reallocation of resources, mm. absolutely right, 100% agree with that, but also for some of the more positive things that a state can do. Mm. States have mm. extraordinary abilities that other actors do not have. Mm. So when we're talking about Germany, let's not just talk about their corporation tax rates, but actually about the tripartite way that they do apprenticeships, where instead of being seen as in opposition to each other, business and unions and the government actually all work together to have a much, much better education system than we do. Um, Let's talk about the ways that they can intervene at a local state level Mm. to change the the way that their local markets work. And I, I... I always get really annoyed when people use markets because actually when you walk down the street and ask people what a market is, they think it's where you buy the fish and the, the vegetables. Mm, yeah. So, But mm. how their local economy works, yeah. how they can actually sort of drive different ways of changing people's behaviour in a really positive way. I think that's something that's missing. In terms of the debate thing, mm. I mean, I get this. I mean, I'm a woman with an opinion on Twitter, so <laughs> I obviously get a load of, of nonsense all the time. Yeah. And I also, because what will happen is one day I'll write an article praising Jeremy Corbyn. Mm -hmm. 
saying I think he's done this thing really really well and I'll get a bunch of followers who love Jeremy Corbyn mm. and then the next week I'll go well I think Jeremy Corbyn really messed that up and they'll all be like why why have you abandoned us in our hour of need and I'm like but I just think the same things I've always thought yeah. but uh, it's, yeah that's and that's the personality politics I mean it's it's just it keeps us into a very rigid a, a rigid view of, of thinking that as if we agree with the ideals of somebody we have to agree with every single aspect of their personality and every a- action they ever take which is really really problematic um jo- george have you got any last points I, I think on social media you've seen the death of nuance so i think it's really difficult to get nuance across in 280 characters and uh, do twitter threads and whatnot but fortunately it might be a bit too late so it's really difficult and social media is fantastic for many many reasons we can spread messages to a large amount of people instantly and you know the last 2017 general election was shifted and moulded by social media in many positive ways, but then you've also got fake news and you've got yeah. the lack of nuance and lack of debate. It's, it's very worrying. So, um, you know, we've just got to keep on doing our thing, uh, you know, Emma and Femi, just just keep going. Keep going exactly. And, uh, and you too, you too. <laughs> you too. Uh, I, I try not to be party political, but we need a new part. We need we need a new government ASAP. ASAP. It is uh, uh, it is an absolute national priority. So thank you very much, George. Um, and we'll, we'll we'll continue. We'll talk later and probably on Twitter when uh, our followers decide whether or not they think we should go to war with each other. <laughs> um, but yeah, cheers, cheers, good to talk. Um, and we and we will be. Uh, coming back after after the, after the break with um, uh, two, with two people, we're going to have uh, Tom Copley, who's who's from Labour, and we also have Ruben Young from uh, Priced Out. Uh, but we will get back to you in a second. This has been the floor is yours. See you in a couple of minutes. The whole housing situation is a mess. Theresa May has promised to spend an extra two billion pounds a year on houses, and you're like, good, because as it stands, the government only builds one percent of the new homes in Britain, which means private companies are providing homes for vulnerable families, and that's why we have poor doors. Do you know what a poor door is? Right, when a company builds a big, new, shiny block of flats, they have a grand entrance at the front for the rich people, and then around the back, they have a separate entrance for the affordable homes. It's shocking, isn't it? Rich people here, scum! Use the cat flap. <laughs> that's not social housing, that's social segregation. And all we hear is, we can't build enough houses. There's no money. There's no money. Bullshit. Kensington and Chelsea Council had a budget surplus of 274 million. Over 60 people died in the fire at Grenfell and hundreds more lost everything. Do you know how much it would have reportedly cost to have fire-resistant cladding? Five grand. Five grand. And not only did they have 274 million in the bank, but in 2015, they gave an opera group 5 million. People need sprinklers, not fucking Pavarotti. (laughs) We have a housing crisis in this country. So if you're a Tory MP, a house is a fucking house. Actually, it's more than that. It's a home. It's a place to sleep and laugh and cry and love and sing and eat and everyone needs one. And if there's money for the Queen, or money in a council's bank account, then there's money to make sure something like Grenfell never, ever happens again. So, um, that was Russell Howard, and that... That hit me hard, because, I mean, it's ridiculous the extent to which we have the ability to solve such a, 
a shameful problem in the country regarding homelessness, regarding people that are unable to afford their own homes, and we are simply prioritizing um, your Kensingtons, your, your your massive mansions that often don't have people living in them, like massive square footage that could 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 house hundreds of people each, and it's ridiculous. It's 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 the ability, and I mean, not not to get all um, uh, Uncle Ben on you here, but with great power comes that responsibility to actually fix this problem. So here we're joined by T- Tom Copley, um, and we're joined by um, Paul, Paul uh, sorry, Ruben Young. Um, welcome to the show. This is The Good Floor afternoon. Is Yours. Hi. <laughs> um, so, Tom, you are part, you are um, the spokesperson for Housing for Labour. Um, and I think... On the London Assembly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, not Nash, I can't claim to be... <laughs> One data. <laughs> Someone in the Labour Party having a heart attack right about now. <laughs> <laughs> John Healy, probably. probably. <laughs> um, but my point is, what what do you think? How would Labour do housing different to the Conservatives? Um, well, to go back to, I listened in earlier to what Emma was saying. Mm. To go back to what Emma was saying, uh, build more bloody houses. Mm. Uh, but specifically, you've got to build the right kind of yeah. houses. And Labour does have a, a commitment. It is actually. John, one of John Healy's commitments uh, for 100,000 uh, social rented homes uh, a year across the country. Mm. Uh, and you may have seen uh, recently a shelters report came out, which called yeah. for, I think, over 20 years, 3.1 million mm. uh, social houses. So fundamentally, uh, at the core of what Labour uh, is going to do is really get us back into delivering, getting the public sector back into the business of delivering housing. Now, it's starting to happen. I mean, you've got councils around uh, London which are building uh, new council housing for the first time in a generation. And the government has finally removed the limits on their borrowing to build housing, which is really, really important. Mm. But we also need the government to actually invest properly as well. And Sadiq Khan, the mayor, estimates we need the government to invest at least an extra £2.7 billion a year in in London alone. Mm. Well, I mean, we saw what happened with Grenfell. Russell Howard just touched on it. Um, the idea that... Do you think there needs to be more reg- more regulation, more more stricter regulation on, on on how these houses get built? I mean, I mean, you saw who... I mean, they... they, they the idea of what was it housing that was fit for hum, human human habitation was that was deemed to be questionable in Parliament, um, which is just embarrassing. I'm so glad that you mentioned that the, the homes fit for human habitation. It's not a bill anymore; it's an act, mm. and that, I've got to say a huge. Congratulations to Karen Buck, MP for Westminster North, who has been pushing at this for years, and you're right. Uh, two attempts, she, she, she put a private member's bill down a few years ago on it. The, it was talked out by Philip Davis, that awful Tory MP. The, the, then uh, she tried to amend uh, some government legislation that was voted down by the Conservatives. Mm. And it was only after Grenfell, actually, that the Conservatives realised they really couldn't be opposing this anymore. Oh, oh well, well done. Well done. Uh, after after Grenfell. It mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's shocking. It really is shocking. Can I just say, on, uh, on, on building quality, because yes, we need to build numbers, we also need to build quality. And the size. issue And size, and mm. size, which is really important. Size does matter, guys. It, it <laughs> does. It does. <laughs> Thank Don't you. get me started. <laughs> Don't get me started on micro-homes. But building regulations, I'm sorry, why was it ever considered acceptable and, and, and safe to put flammable plastic on tower blocks? I mean, deregulation... Uh, across the board has been a huge, huge problem. And I say, you know, people talk about red tape. Red tape saves lives. And well, I mean, yeah. I mean what, that, what happened at Grenfell, I mean, a horrific tragedy. But the wider thing is that what they were trying to do was hide 
social housing. Mm. Mm. Pretend that it doesn't. And that just speaks to a mindset yeah. that we've had about social housing for far, far too long. And by that, you're referring to the fact that the cladding was put on to make it look pretty for the to rich people. It, yeah, for, the, exactly. for the rich people that live across, across the way. And, 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 and Ruben, I mean... You 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 work for priced out yes and the, and and obviously as as name suggests it's about people that are priced out of certain areas yes so we are a voice for people who are priced out of home ownership or priced out of the areas they want to live mm. and I think the the main problem the reason why we're in this situation I think Tom's exceedingly right uh, we need to build more bloody houses mm. I think what neither major political party has the balls to admit though is the reason one of the biggest reasons for the crisis we're in is that we have a bizarre system in this country where every single home we build has to traverse a political approval process mm. Mm. in which people mm. um, local to the area who by definition already have homes in the area get a voice but the people who would actually be the beneficiaries of those developments mm. who are moving in mm. uh, get absolutely no say at all I think we need to totally reform planning in order to build anywhere near the homes we need. So, uh, what well, I mean, I, I hear I hear you in terms of the people who are in the in local area, the ones that are the ones that get the say over whether or not houses get built. But how do we get around that? Uh, by by having rules about what we can build and where, mm. and taking the politics largely out of it. Mm. I mean, there, there should be a, uh, a democ- democratic way of uh, using land, but we should move the democracy upstream so that people vote on the rules that govern planning and not on every single new home we build. It's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. Can, can I, as someone who, someone who sits with my other hat on as a Lewisham councillor, as someone who sits on a planning committee, I, I do want to slightly defend uh, the planning system. I do agree with you, um, particularly where you've got you know developments with significant about social housing it's incredibly frustrating when you get people who are well housed who often own their Mm. own homes objecting uh, to that but it is important that we have good decent planning and particularly that councils have the ability to push back on developments that contain very little social housing or don't bring some other sort of social benefits so let's have a rule about how much social housing Mm. needs to be in a major and I think we need much much more ability for councils to enforce those targets they're targets they're not you know we, we need much more ability to enforce those also we need to be getting people actually involved in planning so much of what I, what we call planning is actually development control it's not planning at all and what's the difference so development control is someone puts a planning application and you object to it because you don't like a tower block uh, going up so it's reactive mm. planning is proactive planning is saying we want to come up with a vision for our area and our community we need this in terms of housing and social housing we need this in terms of doctor surgeries and schools and roads and you know parks and it's actually about building up a vision but because of, you know particularly with the years of austerity it's been paired back compared back to just mm-hmm. this reactive I yep. don't want that to be built thing which is kind of the problem um, I mean and again this goes back to what I was saying is it's not just about building housing vital though that is build more bloody houses mm. but it's about making sure that those houses aren't just built in some vacuum mm. uh, you know particularly outside of London yeah you, know, you quite often get an estate built in the middle of nowhere with inadequate transport links inadequate access no shops Mm. no community centre no local school so it's about thinking about things on a much bigger level and that speaks to some of the stuff that both Ruben and Tom have just been saying Mm. so taking it out of do I want this house or even this estate built here more thinking about what kind of community do I want to live in and how do we get there yeah I mean I I, just to plug a friend of mine uh, Tessa Milligan she's uh, a labour activist she's talked about the triangle the fact that you need to have that 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 three that three-pronged triangle of uh housing 
jobs and transport because because if you don't, if you don't have all three then you're going to it's not going to work you need to have you need to have people that can af- afford to live there which means they need to have a job they need to be able to get to their job which means you need transport they need a place to can live absolutely and there's a, there's a there's many examples there's a classic one in, in Croydon the new Addington estate mm-hmm. which for many it, it was built uh, uh, sort of away from transport away from jobs and it had all, enormous amounts of problems on the estate because of that then the Croydon tram link came in mm-hmm. it's now much better connected people can get to jobs yeah uh, and and it's massive, massive, massively improved the area. Yet you've got to think of these things holistically. Exactly, agree. that's really interesting because New Addington, when I was growing up, was uh, almost slang for a bit rubbish. I was going to say another word there, by the way. And it's great to hear that that's changed because mm. I knew some really great people from there, but they were just disconnected mm. from everybody else, from everything else. And, and but I mean, as you as you mentioned, obviously, priced out house price inflation. How do you deal with that? By building more houses, by building more social rented houses, mm. by building more market houses, by building more market sale, market uh, market rent, absolutely everything, build it everywhere. Which does come to the, the triangle we mentioned, that if we invest in areas that don't have a lot of investment in terms of jobs, infrastructure, uh, industry, then it will, me- it will mean that it will become more attractive to work in those places, which means that there'll be more houses to be yes. built there, it would make more sense to be built there. It also, as I mentioned before, would mean that London, London would stop being the sole land of opportunity in the country. It, absolutely. But but so you're, you're so right that the two things we need to do are build more homes where there's demand and take more demand where there are mm. um, a few yeah, exactly. But far too often, this idea of rebalancing the economy away from London is used as an argument against building homes. Mm. And it's absolutely not either or. We need to do both. How do people use that as an argument against building homes? Uh, because when I when I speak at events and I say we need to build loads and loads more homes in high demand areas, mm. they say no. Let's rebalance the economy instead. Let's send everyone. Um, yeah, but we're not doing either. No, no, it's <laughs> no, not, no, obviously, it's both. Obviously, it's both. It takes a exactly. ridiculous <laughs> mentality to think that. Yeah, as I just mentioned, it works, and you have to have all three for it to actually make any sense. Um, but I mean, the way. The way tenants act also give uh, give uh, uh, well. Sorry, the way um, uh, those who own homes act and they often mistreat tenants. Right to buy. You've I mean you've you've just released a report, Tom, um, about right right to buy wrong for London. What, what, what is what is that about? So what this does it updates some work I did uh, five years ago when I looked at the proportion of. Uh, council homes that were sold under right to buy mm. that are now owned and rented out by private landlords. Yeah. And, and five years ago, 36%, which is still you know, a, high, a high proportion. Now it's 42%. That's 42% of the homes that were built for the public good to be let at social rent mm. now being rented out by private landlords at market rate, mm. sometimes back to the very councils that were forced Jeez. to sell them at a discount. It is uh, it is an absolutely ludicrous situation because councils have a duty, rightly, to to house uh, certain uh, people, uh, mm. particularly families, when they are homeless. Yeah. They haven't got enough council housing because they were forced to sell a lot of it off, and then and for many years weren't really able to build any more. Mm. Uh, and so they have to house people somewhere. So they end up paying these extortionate rates to private landlords, and it, I, I find it it's sort of almost an, apart from anything else an indignity that these councils, mm. these homes that they built, yeah. they are now having to pay private landlords to rent back. It is a complete mess of a system, and we need to end the right to buy. There's also a huge community cohesion problem as well that comes along with it because what you get is these 
these estates that have been built and some of the people in there have lived there their whole lives and you get a lot of right-wing blethering on about how appalling it is for people to stay in social housing when they're actually successful. Something that I find really distasteful. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. idea that yeah. you tell social yeah. housing tenants that success doesn't live here disgusts me, Absolutely. frankly. But equally, what you then get is with the, the houses that have been sold, there is much more financial incentive for those landlords to rent those on much short-term lease so they can raise the rents and raise the rents and raise mm. the rents every time the new leases leave. So those people don't have as much connection to their community. They're very much fleeting. They're transient. They're not coming in and staying. So they don't necessarily look after the front garden, for example. And they don't make connections with their neighbours because they're not going to stay there. So it's really difficult. You've got people who, you know, it's not their fault. They're not bad people, but they haven't got the connection to the area because they haven't got the ability to stay there long term. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah. we've got to also. I mean, as you mentioned, um, the ability to have housing that actually is fit, is fit for fit for human habitation. I mean, we we saw that we saw that regarding regarding Grenfell. And what, what the thing that annoyed me most about that is the fact that the the, the tenants actually wrote to uh, the the landlords, the owners, the council, and basically said, um, "Please give us ca- um, fl- cladding that isn't." Um, flammable, and they basically said, "Yeah, well, we will do that." And then they put on cladding that was flammable. Uh, they actually chose a specific brand, a specific like model, and they put the wrong thing on, and just passed it off as that, which is just unforgivable. Um, but regarding um, housing that's not fit for human habitation, I mean, you've got the one pound home, one, one pound home scheme, uh, which is basically where um, you give families that have the ability to well the means to renovate and uh, to renovate and bring a, 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 an accommodation up to up to snuff um and then they have the obligation to live there for a certain period of time and then after that after that you basically improve the housing in that area and then they move out and you've got more more housing that's actually fit for human habitation what do you think of that guys uh, it, they think they're doing that in Stoke, uh, yeah. aren't they? It, it's not something that would that would work in London no. simply because of the economics of it. There's mm. such demand for London. Mm. In, I think in low demand areas, it's an mm. interesting uh, thing to look at uh, potentially, but it's not one for London. And how do you do, how do you deal with um, bad, bad landlords? Because um, regulation, I mean, regulation, and like, prosecution, regulation, yes. prosecution, yeah, I mean, regulation, exactly and actually, yeah, yeah in, enforcing, enforcing the regulation. Mm. Because one of the pro- I mean, and this is I don't, I don't mean to be too critical of local authorities because their budgets are so stretched, yep. but they have they do find it difficult to enforce. One of the problems is if they take a landlord to court. They don't get they don't get the fines from the landlords. So there is there's a big cost involved to local authorities prosecuting landlords and few benefit. They can issue a civil penalty notice where they will get where the local authority will then get up to thirty thousand uh, pounds in fines. But if they do that, the landlord doesn't get a criminal conviction. Hmm. Not easy. Um, I mean, I remember I was in Brussels uh, for six months, no, twelve months actually. No, no I think it was six months. And I, my landlord. I wasn't a fan. Um, uh, basically, we moved in, and then after, and this was in violation of the contract, she told us that um, hot water and heating were entirely at her discretion. Wow. Um, uh, and, uh, and so there was many, many nights where we'd be under the covers and be able to see your own breath, where if you try and have a shower after midnight, no, 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 no. Uh, that'll be icicles dropping onto your body. Um, uh, yeah, that was something we had to put up with for six months. Um, tell me that doesn't happen here, please. No, <laughs> I God. wish you I just, could. Just check out the, the Vent Your Rent hashtag <laughs> and you'll find a hell of a lot yeah. of stories. Very similar. Ceilings oh. falling down, no hot water, landlords ah. are little in. Rats and mice. Our, our friends, the, is it the... Um, 
the Wilsons, those awful landlords yeah, in Kent. Um, and uh, Mrs. Wilson, she was prosecuted for failing to provide hot water for a disabled yeah. Uh, yeah. tenant. Yeah. Uh, appalling. There's, there's absolute poison. And because we, in, in, in Brussels, in Belgium, of course, you've got longer tenancies and more tenants' rights. But mm. here, you can be kicked out uh, 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 two months' notice after six months. So if you make it, a lot of people are afraid to complain. Well, I mean, but I mean, if we if we improved living conditions a bit, I mean, surely that would. It's one of like I said, it's, there's a triangle of things. It's all in, interconnected. And if we improved living conditions, for example, if people didn't have to go to sleep cold, um, <laughs> then that maybe surely that, surely that would help with the NHS a little bit and productivity. And productivity, which we yeah. have a massive yeah. problem with in this country. Yeah, home home is the foundation of, of people's lives, mm. and you, you, it, the the impact on people's health, mental and physical, on children's education. If there's nowhere to, to do their homework, it's absolutely. Uh, profound, and if we start to get housing right, so many other things uh, will fall into place, and we can sp- we'll be spending less money on you know elderly people going into hospital because yeah. they haven't got proper heating and things like that. We've, we've got to sort this out, and we have enough stress and things to worry about in our lives without worrying whether or not we'll be evicted or be able to pay the rent at the end of the month. Home is where you're supposed to feel safe. That's you know, safe mm-hmm. as houses. That's mm-hmm. a phrase we use. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long we can keep using that phrase. Oh, yeah, and. Um, Apparently, um, I was just going to say, regarding being priced out, to what extent is gentrification a a problem? As in, to what extent are there rich rich communities moving into areas that were previously poor, and to what, yeah. how often is that happening? That's a really interesting um, question. I think that often um, the the debate debate gets a bit muddied because people think that it's the fault of the uh, often kind of young professionals mm. moving into a place which is forcing the us- usually, usually poorer communities out, when in fact they're both caused by the same thing, which is that we, there aren't enough homes near uh, the, where the, the communities we're talking about. Mm. Uh, if we just built enough housing nearby, mm. uh, it wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. Um, I th- it's, 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 a, it's a bad thing for the people who live there, it's a consequence of us not building enough homes, not of us uh, inviting all of these um, young professionals in, and they, they shouldn't be demonised. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, that that, that, that makes sense. It's not. The, it's not. Yeah, it's not the fault of anybody. I mean, we, exactly. We, yeah, I mean, it's. it's <laughs> I mean, consistently, uh, the government fails, then we end up blaming the people rather than the people that make the decisions. Mm. Exactly, which right, is yeah. the problem. <laughs> uh, apparently, four in ten houses do not meet the basic health uh, well-being criteria. Um. I, I mean, is that across all uh, tenures? I mean, uh, there's the um, there's a decent home standard which is used in the social rented mm-hmm. sector, uh, which but but other other tenures are measured against it, and actually it's the private rented sector mm-hmm. that has yeah, the lowest the worst, compliance you know. uh, with that standard. I think that's a slightly different standard, but there is a huge problem with quality. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. This is one of the things that I I I mean, I probably I, would have, I probably should have debated this with um, with George a second ago, but one of the things that I, I talk about regarding Brexit is the fact that Brexit voters were 100% correct that the country does not work for people right now. Mm. And they were tired of it. And after 40 years of nothing really getting better in their area, they saw the Brexit voters as a vote that might actually change things significantly, unlike their first-past-the-post votes, which don't actually change yeah. a thing. And so one thing we, we desperately need is that, obviously, Brexit, because of the economic damage, would, would limit our ability to make those, make those changes. But after that, how do we get the Tories to actually do something between now and the next general election? How do we actually say, you have messed up so bad that we, vote, that we voted for something so harmful? If you don't change things immediately, 
you are inviting the far right to basically rise to power because people will say, well, status quo hasn't provided an answer. We'll look for something else. Because, I mean, obviously, if Labour was in government immediately, you'd, you'd see radical change because it would be Corbyn at the helm of things. But how do we basically hold the feet to the fire of the people that are currently in power to say, change now or your party's finished? You have to tell them they're going to lose power. There's nothing mm. they care about more than that power. And you have to say the only way that you've got any chance of hanging on to power. Mm. You may not want to be full fat Corbyn, but Corbyn light, that's mm. your only option because you just can't... You know, One of the things that Corbyn becoming leader of the Labour Party has done is shift the narrative quite yep. severely to the left. Theresa May, when she first stood on the steps of Downing Street and talked about the just about managing and you know people in real distress, you know, that's what she was saying. She mm. just had no answers. Mm. Well, we've given her a bunch of answers. She needs to, yeah. You know, and frankly, steal our clothes. Steal yeah. our clothes. Yeah, I'd, go I'd, for it. <laughs> I would. I would agree with that. And and actually, you know, the the, the narrative has shifted on housing since the Cameron Osborne days. I mean, let's remember, mm. literally, you know, two or three years ago, we faced the prospect in London of basically all of our council housing being sold off to pay for a right-to-buy discount for housing association tenants. Seems they like were going to do a forced sale. It? Yeah. It, seemed, it does seem like a different world. And, you know, we have had the borrowing cap uh, lifted, uh, which, is a, which is a good thing. The Tories are even consulting on longer tenancies for private tenants. It doesn't go far enough, but I think it goes back to what Emma was saying about fearing losing power. Renters, because so many more people rent, are a growing electoral force. And so the Tories have realised they've got to do something and they're not going to go as far as we would like. Uh, but hold the feet to the fire, say to them, you're going to lose uh, unless you do something about it. And obviously, I hope there's going to be a general election sooner rather than later and we can kick them out. I think that's right. Another thing is is renters are coming together a lot more, particularly in London, than they have before. Campaigns like London Renters Union, Generation Rent are doing a great job of mobilising yeah, yeah. the kind of renter votes, which is definitely going to help with this feet to the fire kind of idea. And I, I think also we need to have the opinions of people who whose families are breaking up because people are moving to the only places they can go to for jobs, for work, for housing. You know, there there is a huge anger out there and that was part of what drove Brexit because people are, are losing the communities they once had because we just don't, you know, outside of London we just don't build them anymore we don't support communities in all the ways that we've been talking about and that's a boiling under anger that's not going to be solved by Brexit and so it's just going to continue to boil up Absolutely. So if, if we were just really, really quick, other than uh, build more bloody houses, uh, what would be your message to how do we include, how do we get um, more young people on the housing ladder? Um, what, what would you say, Ruben? Uh, well, firstly, I'm not, I don't like the idea of the housing ladder for a start. It okay. makes homes sound like investments and you, you climb up and trade up yep. for the next mm-hmm. one and the next one. Uh, but in terms of improving people's life outcomes through housing... I think uh, private renters' rights are a huge, important thing. Longer tenancies, we need to look into rent controls as well. And the other one is property taxes, Mm -hmm. which are absolutely broken in this country. Council council tax, for example, the most expensive properties are taxed at about 0.1% of their value a year, uh, whereas the ordinary properties are taxed at about uh, 1.5%. It's just a completely (laughs) regressive system that makes no sense whatsoever. At minimum, we need to rebound council tax, but I'd much rather see something more radical like a land value tax. Cool. Tom? 
Those three words, land value tax. Mm-hmm. I did a report on this for the London Assembly a, a couple of years ago, and uh, it, we can replace the three main property taxes. You won't end up with a situation where people owning thirty million pound houses in Kensington pay the same council tax mm-hmm. as a you know a, a middle class family in, in you know somewhere else in in London. Uh, it, it, it would it would incentivise uh, uh, development uh, and uh, it would uh, raise an awful lot of money to invest mm-hmm. in infrastructure and affordable housing. And Emma? Uh, well, I'd echo land value tax, uh, mm. but I won't be boring and echo it for too long. So <laughs> I'm going to say end, uh, end right to buy. End right to buy. End right to buy. I mean, it's just it, there's no incentive for a council to build a whole bunch of really, really great, impressive properties just to have them nicked off them at a massive discount. Yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you very much, uh, Tom, Emma, and Ruben. Thank you. Uh, this has been The Floor is Yours. The, uh, clearly, we need to build more fucking houses. Um, <laughs> I'll you get that on a T-shirt. I would like the right to buy that. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> this has been The Floor is Yours. See you next week. You've been listening to a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to FUBARradio.com.